Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, well, we are, we're continuing through Hebrews 11 here, and we're taking 10 verses today, if you can believe it. And <laughs> thank you, Doc. Yes, thank you. Uh, 10 verses today, and no, that doesn't mean it's a, also a three-hour message. It, it actually, um, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a recap from some of the things that we've studied, but then it goes into Moses. So this is going to be fun, though. So it's, I've, the Lord titled the message, Esteeming Christ Above All, and he, and, he, and he titled that because of what Moses did by esteeming the reproach of Christ above the treasures of Egypt. So that's going to be really fun to talk about today. So before we open up here, let's just pray. Lord, I just thank you so much again for this time together. And God, we pray that you would fill this place and anoint this place with your Holy Spirit. God, we pray that you would speak to us today through your word, that God, you would rest here with us, and that Lord, we would hear from you in such a unique and special way for each one of us this morning. We love you, and we praise your name, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we're going through this, we've got to always keep in mind 1 John 2.27. And so again, the, Lord, the Lord's our teacher, right? The anointing of the Holy Spirit. He's our teacher in everything. And so we're looking to him to teach us and to guide us through Hebrews and to guide us through this book. And we are in the middle of the hall of faith, what a lot of people call the hall of faith, because it's all about faith and these great people in the Bible and what they did by pressing on for the Lord. And so to get the most out of it, we've really got to lean on him for everything in it. Now, if you look at the outline, Brent, can you go to the next slide? If you look at the outline, is it working? There we go. Um, we're still in this true and better response is faith. And then if you go to the next one for chapter 11, what we've gone through, what is faith? Through faith, the worlds were framed. The mark of faith with Abel and Enoch. Faith is pleasing. We, we looked at Noah. By faith, you're called. We looked at Abraham. Persuaded by faith with Sarah to press on. And then last week, our new city, our forever home with him. And then this week now, esteeming Christ above all. And the Lord's going to give a recap of Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, and then get into Moses a little bit. So as we think about the book of Hebrews, just don't lose sight that all of these, these men had something, and these people of the Bible, they had something they were looking toward on the other side of this, of all of it, of something that we have to look toward, an internal inheritance with the Lord. And that's why he structured the entire book around these five warnings that build off one another. And we've covered the fourth one back in chapter 10, and the fifth one will be in chapter 12 when we get there. But the danger of drifting, hardening the heart, then you fail to mature, then you start to commit willful sin, and then it's the danger of refusing. And each one of those building up to ultimately what the Bible calls apostasy. And so to become an apostate, it literally just means to turn away from something, right? You're turning away from the Lord. You're apostatizing. And the Lord's building these warnings because he's longing for this relationship with us. And we talk about it all the time, but we just cannot stress it enough that the Lord is looking for a deep relationship for you and I. And that's why these warnings are here, because he's got a kingdom coming, and he wants you to take part of it with him. That's the key. That's the key for all of this. Okay, so back in verse 13, we read, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, 
if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is unheavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And so we covered that in depth last week about the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that God went to prepare for us. Okay, then picking up where we are today in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now remember, we covered this in depth when we studied Abram and his transition to Abraham. Abraham obviously had other children, not just Isaac, but the Lord only recognized Isaac as his promised son. So he was the the only begotten. Okay, that should sound really familiar from John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall have everlasting life. So Abraham, what he did by offering Isaac, I won't go through all of this again, but of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So the line of the Messiah was coming through Isaac. And the Lord told Abraham, okay, you've got to go sacrifice Isaac. And so if you, if you go back and read all of this in Genesis, you know that Abraham told, remember he gets on a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. He tells the guys with him, hey, you stay here. The lad and I are going to go up the mountain and come back to you. So Abraham knew that the Lord had to resurrect him at some point because through Isaac, the Messiah had to come. So, and he had no children yet. And so the Lord couldn't kill him and just leave him dead. So Abraham, by faith, was walking that path of, okay, I've got to go be obedient to the Lord, but the Lord has a problem, right? He's got to resurrect Isaac. And the maps here at the bottom, if you look at those, it's just uh, kind of shrunk down from what we looked at a few weeks ago. But Mount Moriah, if you look at Salem, that's Jerusalem there at the bottom. Remember, Melchizedek was a king and a priest from Salem, that's where that, that name originates from, Jerusalem. And you go up Mount Moriah to the north, and you get to the top where Abraham offered Isaac, and the top is what we would call in the New Testament Golgotha. It's where Christ was offered and sacrificed once and for all. And so Abraham offered his son the very place that the father would offer his son on our behalf of us. And then the whole story after that of of his unnamed servant, Eliezer, which means the comforter, but he's unnamed in the story. He goes to petition a bride for the son who, who is living and breathing, and that bride, Rebecca, comes to meet him in the field. The whole story is a picture of the church and Isaac being a type of Jesus where we meet him up in the rapture. So in verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up. See, it's even confirmed here in the Hebrews. Abraham was accounting to the Lord that he was able to resurrect him. So accounting that he was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. And so it's confirmed here that Abraham had full belief that when he went to offer Isaac, the Lord was able to take care of any problem that they had. So if Isaac needed to be resurrected, the Lord could do that. And that's exactly why he went through with it. And because of that, you know how the Lord looks on Abraham from then forward, of how much trust he had in the Lord. So by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Okay, in verse 20. Okay, Jacob and Esau, it's a really funny story all the way back in Genesis but look at Deuteronomy 21.7. By he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So Esau was the firstborn, if you remember the story. And then remember Jacob grabbed his heel and surplanted him. And that's why the, the, the name Jacob literally means heel catcher. But that's where that name comes from. So Esau was the firstborn, but Jacob surplanted him. The firstborn was supposed to get a double portion. It's got a, they have a blessing all throughout the Bible that the firstborn gets a double portion of the inheritance. And so Esau's inheritance, though, was taken from him and passed on to Jacob. And a lot of that happens in Genesis 27. If 
you remember the story, Esau goes to hunt venison for Isaac when Isaac's very old, but Jacob disguises himself and comes first, disguised as Esau. Remember, he puts hair on his arms and and he receives the full blessing from Isaac, so he surplants Esau. Now, why did that happen? Well, we're going to look at that here in a little bit, but Isaac blesses Jacob. So look at this in Genesis 27. Pick up in verse 27. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore, God, give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and the plenty of corn and wine, and let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. So that verse in verse 29, that blessing upon Isaac, it sounds really familiar to how the Lord pronounced a blessing on Abraham. If you remember blessing, we will, um, blessing, if they bless you, I'll bless them. If they curse you, I'll curse them from Genesis 15. So it's very, very similar. He's continuing that blessing because this is the messianic line that has to come through from Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, ultimately. Okay, in verse 35 here, God's response to Esau. And he said, thy brother came in. So, so that's what, what Jacob blesses Isaac, or I'm sorry, what Isaac blesses Jacob. And then Esau comes in after him, remember? And this is what Isaac says, the Lord through Isaac. And he said, thy brother came with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. And he said, is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. And he said, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac, his father, answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. And by the sword shalt thou live and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass when thou shalt have the dominion that thou shalt break his yoke from off thy neck. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. And these words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said unto him, behold, thy brother Esau is touching thee, doth comfort himself, purposing to kill thee. Now, how much do you think the Lord is going to honor Esau's response? Number one, right? The Lord, Esau purposed in his heart to go and murder his brother as a result of this. And so the Lord is not, obviously, is not going to look fondly upon that. Even if you have anger in your heart toward a brother, it's murder. It's counted as murder, according to Jesus and Matthew. So what what the Old Testament talks about in physical reality, right? Thou shall not murder, thou shall not steal, thou shall not covet, etc. When you go to the New Testament, Jesus took it to the heart. He explained, okay, what that really means is if you've got anger in your, in your heart, in your, in your words toward a brother, you've already murdered them. So he takes it to the heart issue. But the Lord's not going to look fondly upon Esau's response And now, therefore, my son, obey my voice and arise. Flee thou to Laban, my brother, to Haran. And so this is, they're telling them now, and tarry with him a few days until thy brother's fury turn away. They're telling Jacob to run, basically, to an uncle, right? To go go run to family and stay put until Esau cools out a little bit. Until thy brother's anger turn away from thee and he forget that which thou hast done to him. Then I will send and fetch thee from thence. Why should I be deprived also of you both in one day? See, Isaac had, from Isaac's perspective, Esau was checked out. 
So he was deprived of him. Esau is now no longer on the right path. He's going down an angry path that's rebellious against the Lord. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? Okay, when you look at the Messianic line had to come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. You keep going down the list. And the posture of Esau's heart was completely against the Lord, completely against him, all the way from the beginning. And you see this in Malachi chapter 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now, that's an interesting phrase from the Lord because I think all of us are aware dragons are not associated with anything good of the Lord, right, in the Bible. So uh, Satan is the red dragon from Revelation 12, 13 and beyond. The dragon's never used of anything productive for God's kingdom, but his heritage waste laid waste for the enemy in the wilderness. And he confirms this in Romans 9. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And and he's quoting from Malachi 1 here. Now, why did the Lord hate Esau? Well, number one, hates a strong word, right? That's nobody wants to hear written in the chronicles of the Bible for all eternity that the Lord hated you. That would not, that's not a, a place you want to be at. But Esau was rebellious continuously in his life. And when you look at rebellion, not having a heart and a posture of submission and surrender to the Lord, you will get to a point that the Lord cannot pursue you anymore because you've run so far away that you are, you are so far outside of his, not his reach, because anything is possible, but his pursuit, right? You're so far away from him. And that's why James talks about draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And the second that that prodigal son, remember the prodigal son, it's the only time in the entire Bible you see a type of the father in a hurry. The second the prodigal son turned back on that road, no matter how far away he was, the posture of his heart turned back to the father. The father ran to meet him where he was. And that's, that's the God that we serve. But Esau never turned back. He continually ran the other way in total rebellion against God and against his anointed, Jacob, and then the 12 tribes of Israel and beyond. And the descendants of Esau, you can track down the Edomites and, and what happened to them all throughout the Bible. But It never was good. And so the Lord knew that Esau's rebellion was going to lead to a point that his offspring will become nations that war and hate Israel, God's people. And the Lord did not like that. He'd hated that for his people. But he always pursued the enemy. Okay, by faith, Jacob, verse 21, back to Hebrews 11 here. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning upon the top of his staff. So the Lord brings Joseph's sons into the direct line of Jacob. Remember, they go down in the Exodus event, and then the family's there. There's a, well, they go down before the Exodus event, I should say. The family is there. Joseph is down there. There's a famine in the land. The family comes down, and then they all settle in in Goshen in Egypt, and they grow to become a mighty people, right? And then that's when a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph is raised up, and he's against the Israelites then, the whole Exodus event occurs. But before that, when Jacob comes down to meet Joseph finally, this is all in Genesis 48, he gets to meet his two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh are two of the two and a half tribes that wanted their inheritance east of the Jordan. So after all of the wilderness, when they're standing by the Jordan, ready to go in with Joshua and Caleb and conquer the land, they say, hey, that's great, but I don't want to 
I don't want my inheritance to be in the promised land, which is where God wanted it. They wanted to stay east of the Jordan. So they falter along the way through the wilderness. And you too should want your inheritance on the other side of the Jordan, so to speak, right in the promised land of new city. That's where you should want your inheritance to be. Don't accept it here in this life. That's the application for us today. But Jacob gets to meet his two grandsons, and this is in Genesis 48, verse 5. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. So Jacob is adopting them as his own children at this point, not just grandchildren. And in the Hebrew language, they don't actually have a word for grandfather. So sometimes in the Bible, just be aware, sometimes in the Bible when you read uh, so-and-so was the son of, they may not be the direct descendant of in terms of that's my dad. It may be a great-grandfather or a great-great-grandfather. So just be careful of that as you're reading throughout Scripture. And thy issue which thou begettest after them shall be thine and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. And as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan, in the way when yet there was but a little way to come unto Ephrath. And I buried her there in the way of Ephrath. The same is Bethlehem. Now that is, that's interesting that she was buried in Bethlehem. Okay, in verse 8, And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said unto his father, They are my sons whom God hath given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee, unto me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face, and lo, God hath showed me also thy seed. See, remember, Jacob longed for Joseph so much because his, his brothers sold him to slavery, threw him in that pit, sold him to slavery off to Egypt, and then they lied to Jacob about it. Remember, they took his raiment and said he must have been eaten by a beast in the field. And Anyway, so Jacob lived his whole life, the whole rest of his life as a dad, mourning a son that truly was alive. How heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. So you kind of get the picture. He's got Ephraim in his right hand and Manasseh in his left, and he pushes them toward Jacob. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head. So he, he swapped. So Jacob swapped his hand over to Ephraim and his left hand upon Manasseh. So Jacob's kind of like this almost. And Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So the right hand, this is why Joseph had Manasseh in his left hand. He was putting him toward Jacob's right hand because he was the firstborn. And the right hand should have given him the double portion or the double blessing. But he didn't. Jacob swapped. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Now, if you remember, remember Jacob, uh, my father-in-law loves to say, the only sport in the Bible is wrestling. And because Jacob wrestled with Jesus, if you remember that, and, he, and, he, and Jacob at some point was prevailing, remember and then uh, Jesus just popped his hip out of socket, and then he walked with a limp his whole life. But that's who, that's who he's referring to, the angel which redeemed me from all evil. There's only one that can redeem you from all evil, and that's Jesus, the one that Jacob wrestled with. And he just didn't know his name as, Yesh as Yeshua quite yet. Bless the lads, and let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when, so verse 17 here, and when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. 
And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. So Joseph's trying to switch Jacob's hands at this point. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set, as, and he set Ephraim before Manasseh. So he's prophesying here. He's prophesying here that the younger would actually become more than the greater. And so this is a prophecy from the Lord. And if you study uh, Manasseh and Ephraim throughout the Bible, surely that comes to pass. Manasseh, Manasseh becomes much greater than Ephraim. Go back, go to uh, Numbers and other places when they get in the land and look at the numbers of the tribes, the census that's taken there, and, and it, comes to tr- it comes to pass. But Jacob knew it from the Lord. He was prophesying over him. So in verse 21 here, and Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die. <laughs> it's very straightforward. I die. But God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. So he's blessing, he's blessing his children and grandchildren here before he dies. And what a special place, right? Grandfathers, if any of you are in here that are grandfathers, you have such a special place in the lives of your children and their children, your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, to bless them, the opportunity to bless them and to take that place of spiritual authority in their lives and to pray for them and to pray for the next generation and to pass on the heritage of the Lord to them. It is such an honor. And, and grandparents are, they should be held in such high esteem by the family and honored because they have such a special place in the lives of, of the children and the people. And even, even those of you that have kids that get the opportunity to spend time with grandparents, you know how special that is. When, the, when your kids get to spend the day or the evening with the grandparents and go and have fun, and it's just, so, there's something so unique about that relationship, and it's modeled throughout the Bible. So my encouragement to all of you in here that are grandparents, take that serious and take that time in prayer and pray over your family. So verse 22, back to Hebrews 11 here, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. So remember, we covered this a couple weeks ago, but that Joseph did not want his bones left in Egypt because he wanted to be resurrected in the land. And I think he, even if his bones were left in Egypt, he probably would still be resurrected in the land. But, so don't worry about where you're buried, necessarily. But, but he saw that, he, w- he was concerned about that, right? He was concerned that, okay, I'm going to be resurrected. I've got the word of God in my hands, the Lord's going to resurrect me and he's promised me an inheritance over here in Israel. I need to make sure I'm there, right? When I, when I come out of that dirt. And so in Genesis 50 is where you see this. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, <laughs> just like Jacob said, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. It's interesting to note that embalming started all the way back in Egypt. They, they had a lot of advancements in science and things that you, don't, you kind of take for granted. But then when you, you fast forward a little bit, the children of Israel, when they leave in Exodus, they remember that and they carry Joseph's bones. Okay, verse 23. Okay, the Lord now is moving on to Moses. Moses, one of the greatest men in the Bible. And we, when we were studying Revelation, we were talking about how he is likely one of the two witnesses, uh, Moses and Elijah. They're both Jewish prophets that did not finish their ministry. And when you look in Revelation at the signs that they do, the signs and wonders against uh, the beast and the beast system and the seven-year tribulation, 
they line up with exactly what Moses and Elijah did in the Bible. So it's not something to be you know, dogmatic about or anything, but uh, just keep in mind that Moses is held in very high esteem to the point that you learn in Jude that Satan fought with Michael over the body of Moses. Moses is also the only person in the Bible that the Lord took it upon himself to personally bury his body. So that it's just interesting. The Lord took it upon himself and buried him at Mount Nebo somewhere hidden. And then we learn in Jude, you don't learn this at all in the Old Testament, but in Jude you learn that Satan wanted that body for some reason. Now, why would he want that body? It's probably, it's probably another reason confirming he is one of the two witnesses in Revelation, but there's something special about Moses. So, by faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. So, remember the decree from Pharaoh to murder all of the male children. So, he, he had, was trying to convince the Hebrew midwives if you deliver a Hebrew baby and it's a male, please kill it. If it's a daughter, let her live. And that's Satan's agenda from the beginning is always surrounds depopulation of some kind, wiping out humanity, wiping out mankind, trying to kill the messianic line. Uh, don't let that line of Jesus survive. And he's still trying to do that today. He's trying to wipe out Israel. Again, if he can wipe them out, they can't petition Jesus to return from Hosea 5.15. So that's why the entire world is against Israel. Okay, so they saw as a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Okay, so it, this is interesting. The king had a commandment that Moses' parents were not afraid of. They were more afraid of the Lord than of what the government was telling them to do. Okay, that, we could take a lot of lessons from that. Uh, in the world which we live now. But that's the question, right? Whom do you fear more, God's command or that of the world? That's the question. So look at Exodus 20, 18 through 26. If you go and read all of that, the children of Israel feared for their lives. Remember, they all come to Mount Sinai. They fear for their lives and the world more than God because God rains down in fire and brimstone and thick darkness and lightning and he's speaking to them. He wants to speak to them directly, but they're terrified for their lives more than they are for God. And so they run the other way, and they ask Moses to be the one to go talk to him and then come tell them what he said. And from then on, it is total failure on the Israelites' part. They wanted, they wanted to pick up a book about what God said instead of the book that God wrote that said what he said. You know, that's kind of the difference. And, but you read Exodus 33, look at Moses. This is how we should all be, showing that Moses feared God more than anything. So starting in verse 17 here, And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. See, that's the call that you want on your life, is that the Lord knows you by name. You don't want the call that Esau had, that the Lord was against you. He knows you by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see it and live. So the Lord is telling Moses, hey, I'm going to set you somewhere. You can't see my face, but you're on the inside track. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. Okay, that is, that is a great object lesson for you and I. You and I want to be standing upon the rock next to the Father. So who is the rock? It's Jesus, all through the Bible. Jesus is the rock. He was the rock that followed them in the wilderness. It's confirmed in the New Testament. He's the stone cut without hands that the builders rejected. He's become the headstone of the corner. So he is the rock throughout the Bible. And your place is available next to the Father because you can stand on that rock. And so when you stand on that rock that is Jesus, you get a place next to God. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me 
So you want to be in that place by him, not a place stranded out in the world somewhere away from him. In verse 22 here, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by that I will put there in a, in a cleft of the rock and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by and I will take away mine hand and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. So there's something about the father's face that no man can see and live. And so he's covering Moses' eyes. He walks by and then removes his hand. So Moses got to see the Lord personally in his glory. And if you fear the Lord, he will place you by his side upon that rock that's Jesus. And you get to see his glory in a deeper relationship. That's the key. That's, that's the lesson for you and I. So by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughters. That's Hebrews 11, verse 24. And he refused to become the son of Pharaoh's daughter. See, Moses could have had anything he wanted in the world. He, Egypt ruled the earth. They were the prime kingdom ruling over all the nations. Moses had an inside track directly to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh trusted him, and he could have had anything, right? Moses could have had anything. But then he sees, remember, the Israelites start to become afflicted, and Moses is grieved for his people, and he stands up, he stands up, and he fights back against the world. He starts pushing against the world. There's even some ancient texts that talk about how Moses was a, a mighty general in Egypt that led wars on behalf of Egypt against Ethiopia. And so he was, he was highly intelligent. Uh, he was a scholar. He, he led men into war. He was a great, great man, but he chose the Lord over everything of the earth. That's the key. So whose son are you? Son, whose son are you? John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. See, when you, when you become, this is why you must become born again, so that you can become a son of God, so that you are then a legitimate son or daughter. That, that term is neutral here in the Bible, but the sons of God so that you can become a child of the king and become born again. He gave power to become the sons of God. Romans 8, 14, but for as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8, 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Did you know that when you become born again, the entire earth and every creature that God created is groaning for you to be manifested as the Son of God. That means to get your glorified, resurrected body and to forever rule and have dominion over the earth. That's, they're waiting for that. That's amazing from Romans 8. Philippians 2.15, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Now that's, that's a call to us today, right? We need, to be, we need to be blameless and harmless without spot or blemish, as Ephesians 5 says. A church without wrinkle, that's without spot. You're not spotted by the world. You are bowing your knee to the king and the king alone in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. You know, you could... You could say that about a lot of nations around the world, and it's becoming more and more evident here where we live today as, as well. Among whom, though, ye should shine as lights in the world. That's the key. You are to be the light of the world. And so the light, how can you be the light of the world, right? If you're under a lampshade or covered up, the Lord talks about that. A light should be on a mountain shining out over the city. So don't be afraid to profess the king to your your friends, family, co-workers, whomever. 1 John 3, 1, Behold, what manner of love thy Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. 
Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. This is, a, this is one of those physics statements in the Bible. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is the verse where you confirm that you get your resurrected body at the rapture, right here in 1 John 3, 1. Because when he shall appear, Jesus, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right now, you know, if you saw a, a picture of a friend or a family or something, you're seeing a, a 2D representation of a three-dimensional person out there walking around. Right now, Jesus is occupying, obviously, in, in the infinite space of beyond the 10 dimensions, but when we see him, we get to see him in all of his glory finally at that moment when we get our resurrected body. You have those eyes and access to everything outside this world that you don't have access to right now. So it's going to be incredible. In verse 25 here, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Okay, if you follow the Lord, you too will suffer affliction. So Moses is choosing affliction with God's people over the pleasures and treasures of this world. That's what he's choosing here. Look at Psalms 88, 9, verse 9. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon thee. I have stretched out my hands unto thee. Psalms 106, 44. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. Okay, what should be your comfort during affliction? Psalms 119, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. So his word will sustain you during any affliction in your life. But for his word to sustain you, you've got to be in it. Okay, you can't know it and conquer and push back against that affliction and against the enemy if you're not in his word. It's just that simple. Psalms 119 verse 92, unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in my affliction. So his law should be your delights so that you don't perish in affliction. Psalms 119 verse 153, so when you read Psalms 119 also, it's broken up into sections of the Hebrew alphabet. So you'll see occasionally in your Bible, you'll see a, a Hebrew uh, letter right at the very front. So that's what verse 153, that's what that resh is. It's, a, it's an acrostic in the Hebrew alphabet, that whole uh, chapter. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. Consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. So you can't forget it, and he'll deliver you in affliction. Isaiah 30, verse 20, And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner Anymore, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers. Okay, the Lord's delivering bread of adversity and the water of affliction, but then you stand on the word and you get through it in that case. Isaiah 48, verse 10, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. You know, this, the word furnace just reminded me of uh, Daniel's buddies, right? In the furnace of fire in, in Daniel. They chose not to bow to Nebuchadnezzar, Remember, he, he made a gold statue all of himself, and when they blew those instruments, everybody had to bow down to it. Well, they chose not to, and as a result, they were thrown into what? The furnace of affliction. But who was in the midst of the fire with them? Remember, the guards are sitting there and going, didn't we throw three, three young boys in the fire? Why is there the fourth? And a fourth that looks like the son of man. Well, Jesus was in that fire, obviously, and they weren't harmed at all, but then the people that set the trap were the ones that got killed by it. And even that is a, is a type of the tribulation, because where was Daniel? He's a type of the church in that model. He wasn't there. So he's absent from that trial, uh, that affliction, the time of Jacob's trouble. He's, he's set aside, and it, just in that little model, the church is there, because he's not there the young men are preserved through it by Jesus, and then the enemies of the Lord are taken out. So what does it mean to be chosen by God? You know, when you think about that, I've chosen you in the furnace of affliction. You know, when you and I, when we're on this, this sanctification process and you're being chosen by God, 
He may choose you for a lot of things that make you uncomfortable. He may choose you to step out to start a ministry, teach a Bible study, uh, go feed the homeless, I don't know, build homes for, for boys that are in need, whatever it could be. Go on a mission trip across the ocean somewhere. Whatever it is, when you are serving him and he's choosing you and calling you by name and calling you out, you should expect affliction. Just know that in advance, that there will be rocky times, there will be affliction will come from the enemy, affliction will come from the world, affliction will come in your life by a lot of people, and, but just know that that's what is to be expected, and that's okay. The Lord hates you because it hates the one you serve. Uh, the, Lord did, the Lord was not received by his own people, right? I came into my own and they received me not. Here's the, the messianic Jewish rabbi that was foretold all the way from the beginning of time that when he would show up. In Daniel 9, they gave him exactly the day he'd be there and they still rejected him. They still yelled, crucify him. You know, put him out. We don't want anything to do with him. That's the same response you should expect from the world. Just Know that in advance. Okay, Isaiah 63, 8. For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Now that is amazing. Isaiah 63.10, the Holy Spirit is called out. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. It's very rare that the Holy Spirit's called out in the Bible, much less in the Old Testament. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people saying, where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? It's amazing that the Lord walks through what Moses did in the book of Isaiah, calling, calling him out. Verse 12 here, Isaiah 63, 12, that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. It's not that Moses would have an everlasting name, it's that the Lord would have an everlasting name by parting the waters. And if you remember after that, when they're in the promised land, remember Rahab? Remember Rahab at Jericho says, hey, I know what, we've heard what your God did in Egypt and in the sea, and, and the Lord gets renown amongst the heathen because of what he did there in the sea. Isaiah 63, verse 13, that led them through the deep, as an horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble, and as beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest so didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. So just again, keep in mind, you may be called to suffer some affliction, not just in your own life, but with and alongside God's people. So suffering affliction for God, look at these verses, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our light affliction, this is how the Lord views it on your behalf. Your light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Look at 2 Corinthians 8.2. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their, of their liberality. 1 Thessalonians 1.6. And ye became the followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. 1 Thessalonians 3.7. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over, over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. James 1.27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's, that's an amazing verse. Use that as a memory verse sometime. It's incredible. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father, visiting the widows and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Jesus always had a huge heart 
for the widows and orphans continuously. James 5.10, take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. So suffering, affliction for God, it's, it's something that you should take it to heart and take it as great joy and honor because the Lord views it as being light and short-lived. Even if you were afflicted every day of your life on this earth, it's short-lived compared to eternity. And so you and I need to keep that in mind. Just keep that eternal perspective that God always has for his people that what you're going through is a season. It's but for a season. And there will come a time when you're on the other side of this that you will never have to deal with it again. So look at the last verse here, Hebrews eleven twenty six. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, speaking of Moses, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Now, it's amazing. I didn't write this in your notes. It's amazing that according to Hebrews 11.26, Moses was esteeming the reproach of who? Greater than the treasures in Egypt, of Christ. Well, that name was not in the Old Testament anywhere, but Moses knew him. And he shows up all over the Old Testament. That's why in Psalms 40, verse 7, it says, In the volume of the book, it's written of me, speaking of Jesus. Joshua 5, he's standing there with his sword drawn. Jesus is the one that fights the battle at Jericho. He's the one that leads the charge. It's not Joshua. Go back and read Joshua 5. He confronts a man with holding a sword, and that man says, I am the captain of the Lord's host. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And that's, he knew exactly where he had heard that from before. That was the exact same words that Jesus, the voice of the burning bush, gave Moses at that time. And Jesus lays claim to it in John chapter 8 when he says, before Abraham was, I am. He uses the phrase, I am. Remember Moses says, who shall I tell them sent me? And he says, I am that I am. So we should esteem God's correction, his reprimanding or reproach, greater than any treasure in this life. And again, who do you fear more? It's just that simple. Do you esteem Christ and the reproach of Christ greater than the treasure if you betray him and join the world? Okay, because if you're a true legitimate son or daughter of the king, you will get corrected by the Lord for that. And so if you fear that reproach more, you should fear that more than you fear the treasure of the world. Any treasure in this life. And again, the criticism of the world or the criticism and correction of Almighty God, that's the question, right? Who do you want to be criticized, not be criticized by, God or the world, and drive you into that sanctification process because the riches we have in Christ are totally beyond anything you and I can ever imagine. In 2 John 1.8, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. And we've talked about this a lot in here and how you, can, you have rewards laid up for you in heaven for faithful service. We're going to look at some of those for a minute. But 2 John 1.8 talks about you can lose or forsake your relationship with the Lord. You can lose some of that reward. He's pleading with you to receive a full reward, not a partial of some kind. In Hebrews 11.6, remember we studied this earlier, it feels like eight months ago now, but it was just a few weeks. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that, that diligently seek him. That's the only place in the entire Bible that word is used, rewarder. Revelation twenty two twelve. though, look what Jesus says towards the very end of the Bible. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. So his reward is with him when he's coming quickly. All right, so the, the rewards in the Bible, we've, we've looked at these before, but I put them back in your notes as a reminder. There are five crowns in the Bible. The crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, crown imperishable, and the crown of rejoicing. And every one of those is tied to something else that you do. If you feed the flock, if you're looking for his appearing, uh, if you suffer for him, Speaking of suffering, affliction, if you go look all of those up, 
you get to Revelation, and the Lord in, in chapters two and three has rewards for the overcomer to eat of the tree of life, not heard of the second death, hidden manna, white stone, and a new name to pour over the nation, power over the nations, white raiment, a pillar and a new name to sit with Christ on his throne and to inherit all things at the end of the Bible in, in Revelation 21. Okay, so how do you become an overcomer? Because these are all promises to an overcomer. Well, you remain loyal to God in Revelation 2, 1 through 3. You don't lose your first love like the church at Ephesus did. You overcome trials and tribulations while remaining faithful in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. So that affliction that you and I receive from the world, you overcome that. You be spiritually zealous for the Lord in Revelation 2, 19. You don't deny Jesus in Revelation 3, 8 and 3, 10. And you don't defile your garments in Revelation 3, 4. And you keep the word of his patience in Revelation 3.10. That's how you become an overcomer, an overcomer according to God. And when you do that, and you have the opportunity to surrender everything of your life to him. Everything, anything that's holding you down, anything the enemy would use to attack you in your life. Take that to the Lord and surrender it to him. Because... It's only by him that we can overcome. You've got to give your entire life to Jesus. He does not want just a piece of you or I. He wants all of us. All of us. And it starts, if you're watching this or in this room today and you're not born again, it starts in that. You've got to be born again. It's Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead you shall be saved. It is so simple. It is so simple. Jesus died for you. He was buried. We know from Peter, during that time when he was in the tomb, he went down to the very depth of Tartarus, which is the lowest part of Hades in the center of the earth, to declare victory on your behalf. He went and conquered death and the grave on your behalf. And when he did that, to all of those fallen angels that were chained in there that had rebelled against him from the beginning in Genesis, he looked at them and said, you lost. You lost and I'm victorious. He didn't go down there to preach. He went down there to declare in the, in the Greek. That word is to declare victory. He went to declare victory for you and I. And again, I mentioned it last week, but you and I are the most sought after piece of all creation the entire universe is created with you in mind. And God wants you more than anything to the point that he was willing to die on your behalf. And he could have at any time while hanging on that cross just said, that's it, I'm out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. It hurts too bad. It's, I'm getting too much uh, ridicule and accusations and suffering. I can't breathe. You know, I'm bleeding out, whatever. And, but he chose, he chose to go through that on behalf of us. And Isaiah 118 is a result of all of that. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And that's what he does on our behalf. Anything that you've ever had in your life, again, don't let the enemy shame you. We talked about this a lot last week. Do not let the enemy shame you for anything you've ever gone through in your life, anything that's ever happened in your life, because Jesus has said that you're not only forgiven, but he's forgotten about it. He's cast it as far away as the east is from the west. In Malachi, he buries it in the depth of the sea. He has forgotten about it. So do not let the enemy tell you that's who you are anymore. And that's the key to, to standing up and rising up in victory and then walking for Jesus. That's the, that's the greatest joy you'll ever have in your life. So if you need anything, that's our email address on the screen. Uh, if you're out there watching this and you got saved, let us know. We love to hear from people. Um, been hearing from people all over the world. It's awesome that God's word is getting out there. So please reach out to us. We love it. We absolutely love it. So Lord, we just thank you so much for this time together. God, we are so grateful that we have the privilege 
to gather together without the threat of persecution, that we can gather and open your word and study your word and the depth of your word. God, we thank you that you preserved it for all eternity on our, on our behalf for this day in which we live right now. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've called us. We thank you that we have a purpose in our lives to serve you until you call us home. And so, Lord, for all of those that have lost someone this year, we pray that you would comfort them. We pray, Lord, that you would turn any of their sorrow to joy and that, God, you would wipe away those tears and take your rightful position in their lives as head and comforter, God, because that's who you are. Jesus, when you left, you said that you would send the comforter. And so, Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells each one of us that are born again and sons of the living God. And Lord, we pray as we continue this study through Hebrews that you would teach us everything and prepare us for what you have next after this, Lord. And God, we love you. We pray that you'd be with us as we leave this place and bless our time as we all gather tomorrow evening to be together in fellowship, Lord. We love you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.